Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Sharon James, taking a close look at some false worldviews and Christianity's contrasting responses. So Marx was one of these academics who thinks that they can tell the world how to behave, um, but they have little interest in putting it into practice themselves. And you contrast that, Bill, with the followers of Jesus Christ, who real living Christians say, we follow the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And you find the real life outworkings of Christianity in terms of sacrificial giving, sacrificial serving, going to the hard places to serve the poor. Sharon James, next. If it seems Western societies are unraveling, Dr. Sharon James says it's because certain false worldviews have gained a foothold and we're now seeing the consequences. In her new book, The Lies We Are Told and the Truth We Must Hold, Sharon ultimately wants believers to be very conversant with the truths of Scripture. Sharon James is policy analyst for the Christian Institute in London. Sharon, what prompted this book? Why this subject and why now? Well, why now? Because I work for an organization called the Christian Institute. And as we go around our four nations here, we find people saying, what is going on? What's going on that my 12-year-old can come home and tell me that she's pansexual? What's going on that a respected academic can be sacked for believing that women are women? And in this kind of environment where people are confused and questioning, we are also finding that many Christians are quite anxious and afraid about speaking out about their Christian beliefs. And they feel we better retreat into the private sphere, to stay in our church, to stay in our homes, but we're not allowed to talk about our faith in public. So I really wanted to write this book to reassure Christians we do not have to be afraid of the gospel, because when you look at the lies that are influencing our society on an individual level, and on a societal level, those lies work out badly. They, they're terrible in real life, whereas Christianity is the biblical worldview, is the worldview that works in practice. So that's the, the second section, the truth we, are, we must hold. Uh, Christians, be bold, be confident. Uh, the, 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 the lies that you're hearing, don't be intimidated by them. Just point out what terrible results they have in reality. I like what you're saying, that uh, obviously we're going to look at uh, the, the lies as you see them and the truth of, the, of uh, Christianity, of the scriptures, and yet at the same time, it's not just in a theoretical realm that the, uh, this is a lie, this is the truth, but rather, how have they played out? What have been the consequences? You, I think you used the word practical. What, what actually w- was the fruit of these various yeah. ideas? Well, exactly. I mean, I'm married to somebody who was an engineer before he became a pastor and then a principal of the Bible college. And when engineers make products, the, the, the litmus test is, do they work? Mm-hmm. Does the car work when it goes on the road? Um, but tragically, many academics, they're not held to account for the consequences that their ideas have. And I'm also, I come at it from a historian. I, I began life as a history teacher many years ago. And I passionately believe that history is about real people. And so I've read lots of worldview books and they tend to be about ideas and they're quite academic and quite theoretical. But my my passion is to say, how does this work out in the lives of those who promote those ideas, those individuals? How do those ideas work out in whole societies? Um, And then I'm also very passionate about young people. How do those ideas work out in the lives of young people today? Um, And it's not a pretty story. 
Well, how is the book laid out? I mean, it's very systematic. Can you can I give us just a quick uh, overview of uh, how you put it together? The first half of the book is about the lies we are told. And you could simplify it to saying the fundamental lie is that there is no creator God. Uh, evolution has got a lot to answer for. You can live a life as if there is no creator God. But if there's no creator God, the logical consequence of that is there won't be a judgment. I'm not accountable to anyone. And if there's no creator transcendent God out there, there's nobody out there to tell us what absolute morality is. We can all make our own rules. So no God, no absolute morality. But even worse than that, if, that, if there can be worse, there's no ultimate truth. Because who's to say what is true and what is false? Words no longer have any meaning. So no God, no absolute morality, no ultimate truth. And I look at how that works out. And then the hinge chapter in the middle is about the compromised church, because sadly, I argue that many sections of the visible church, the professing church, um, the so-called Christian church, have compromised with the lies. You only have to look at the way that church has compromised with the LGBTQI plus agenda to see that. And that's deeply confusing to many non-Christians, because when they say, what do Christians say about this? And they just walk into a big church building, they may not get the biblical truth. So in that hinge chapter, I say the only way to find out what the truth is, is to look at what God's word says, which cannot make mistakes. If the living God has spoken, he never makes any mistakes. And there are still churches that believe that God's word is the living word. Find those churches, find those places where truth is proclaimed. And then that hinges into the second half of the book which says when we look at the truth we must hold, the biblical truth, God has designed us as human beings um, to relate and to care. And his patterns of family life, the natural family, community life, where we're here with a work ethic, the creation mandate to serve each other's needs, um, and national life as well. After Babel, he created nations to protect us against global tyranny. And he appoints rulers to promote good and restrain evil. God's patterns for human life mesh with the way that we have been made. And when we obey his moral law and follow his patterns as laid out in scripture, but also in nature and even in human nature, um, we flourish both as individuals and as societies. So I argue that the Christian worldview is the only firm basis for human dignity on an individual level and human flourishing on a societal level. And in the context of all of this, and you make the point uh, at least a couple of times that I saw in, in the book, probably more, that we are in a fallen, sinful world. Uh, all of humanity falls uh, under that as well. And so when you're looking at either of these two alternatives, the the world the worldview without God and the one with God uh, from the Scripture, you're, you're dealing with uh, fallen humans who still are flawed and still make errors on, on either side. Absolutely. And this is so important because one of the fundamental um, problems with current worldviews, which eliminate the Bible, eliminate God, they tend to uh, assume that we are not sinful. And then you, you, you move into the, the scenario where you paint people more in terms of what group they belong to, and particularly current thinking, pushes people into competing identity groups and paints some as the oppressors and some as the victims. And then the terrifying scenario comes when you want to effectively eliminate the oppressors and raise up the victims. 
But as Solzhenitsyn pointed out, the line between good and evil runs through every human heart. We are all as human beings corrupted by sin, but we are all equally made in the image of God. And there is a glory and a dignity about every human life. And when we look at somebody who is human and breathing, uh, we're looking at somebody who is made in the image of God who should be respected. So there is that, the Christian worldview has that um, concept that is true to reality, that there is good and bad in, a, in, in every human being. Every human should be respected, but also every human being should be held accountable and responsible and have individual responsibility for the uh, for the evil that we do. Well, the book is The Lies We Are Told, The Truth We Must Hold, Worldviews and Their Consequences. And just taking a look at that, uh, no God and no absolute morality, uh, Sharon, of course, it's not that idea. Is it new necessarily? It's been with us throughout history, but there were people in, in the recent past who actually uh, brought it forth and put labels on it. I mean, they, they came up with very uh, concise and well thought through uh, worldviews. Can, can you tell us who they, a couple of examples of who they were and what they taught and then the consequences? Yes, some of the headline names would be obviously Charles Darwin um, after the origin of species. You, you begin to have a whole nations thinking, well, we don't have to believe in a creator God anymore. Um, but then another headline name, Karl Marx, um, who famously said religion is the opium of the people. And mm -hmm. what he meant by that is that it just lulls people into a passive acceptance of their miserable lives. It's a false consciousness uh, that must be eliminated. For Marx, religion was not something innocent or something neutral. It was something evil that, that had to be gotten rid of. That thinking that there's no God, no judgment, and that actually religion is an evil thing led straight to the horrors of the gulags of the 20th century. And I list out some of the appalling societal consequences of Marxism. But I also give lots of little practical examples of how that affected real individual lives. I mean, there's a very telling vignette in Solzhenitsyn's Gulag Archipelago, because he himself was imprisoned. And he remembers one night hearing the harrowing cries of a, of a teenage girl. And he found out that that girl had been left outside in the freezing cold all night simply for muttering under her breath a comment about freedom that had been overheard when she was in a queue. And he vowed, you know, one day I'm going to make the whole world hear about you, girl. And that's what inspired him to write his um, accounts of what the outworking of an atheistic worldview is like. His comment on the gulags was, men have forgotten God. So I look at Marx, I look at others after him and, and following on, who argue that Christian morality itself is a toxic force and must be gotten away done away with. So I look at people like Margaret Sanger, the founder of Planned Parenthood. Um, I look at uh, William Reich, the father of the sexual revolution. He wrote a book called The Sexual Revolution. But I show that in their own lives, uh, the abolition of morality had appalling consequences. And then as we look around us at the world today, where every effort has been made to dismantle the natural family and Christian morality, we have unprecedented uh, global levels of fatherlessness that are leading to oceans of insecurity, pain, and misery. So it's that thing of the lies working out badly on an individual level. Margaret Sanger's life was a mess. Uh, three marriages, well, neglected children, uh, efforts to cover up her complicity with Hitler and his regime, desperate efforts to find meaning via the occult, just utterly sad. And then Reich, the father of the sexual revolution, his ridiculous ideas about constructing machines to harness sexual energy that he thought might control the weather 
fraudulent, and he ended up dying in a prison in, 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 in the United States. So yes, the lies work out badly, personally and societally. Um, and those are some of the names I mention in the book. Now, how about in the life, the individual life of Karl Marx? Uh, obviously, Marxism <laughs> has had a tremendous, uh, huge influence in our world, and it's certainly gotten somewhat of a grip in the United States. I, tell tell yeah. us about what 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 do we know about how, you know the the care for the uh, the common man, the the worker, and all of that that he expressed. But how, how did yeah. that play out in his in his private life? Yeah, well, well, Marx famously spent most of his life just down the road from where I live, sitting mm. in the uh, British Library. And in the British Library, he wrote his massive work, Das Kapital. And he had huge interest in people in the abstract, capital P, people. Um, he had zero interest in real people, small p, as in individuals. Um he, he, he never went out to actually make friends with laborers or factory people. And the one worker he had real life contact with was his servant. And he abused her appallingly. Um, he never paid her a wage. He got her pregnant and she had to put the child in, into an orphanage. Uh, she was effectively a, a, almost a household slave. So Marx was one of these academics who thinks that they can tell the world how to behave um, but they have little interest in putting it into practice themselves. And you contrast that, Bill, with the followers of Jesus Christ, who real living Christians say, we follow the one who came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. And you find the real life outworkings of Christianity in terms of sacrificial giving, sacrificial serving, going to the hard places to serve the poor, whereas Marx wrote grandiose ideas about how to liberate the poor, but in fact, he regarded people as human material and effectively said that they could be eliminated in the interests of the proletariat or the revolution, abstract causes. So he was all about abstract causes, but not about actually caring for real people. His family, he neglected appallingly. So, so, so a grotesque personal life, um, grand ideas, but then grotesque societal outworkings of those ideas when you look at the millions killed in the name of Marxism in the 20th century. How do you explain, and this is, I think, a perplexity to, to a lot of people, that, that what you just explained is things that, uh, at least on a broad level, people have been aware of, some of the consequences of Marxism. Why does it seem like it's gaining a foothold again uh, in the United States? What's going on? I think that there is a deliberate and lamentable ignorance about the real life outworking of communism. I mean, I find it very telling that Jordan Peterson says that the one book that young people should read but don't read is the Gulag. But actually, you don't even have to read that massive long book. Just read One Day in the Life of Ivan Denisovich, which gives one day in the life of a Soviet labor camp. But many young people have never read that. So people have forgotten our history. And they think that uh, the, the worst thing in the world is any hierarchy or any inequality. Now, you know and I know that individual human beings are not all the same. And so in a world where there is natural variation of ability and talent, you will never get exact equality. But where societies have been impacted by the Christian worldview, inequalities have been mitigated by means of compassion, generosity, philanthropy and social reform. Nowadays, people aren't wanting any of that stuff. They just want the end of hierarchy, total equal outcomes, and hence there's this false appeal 
of any worldview that seems to offer equal outcomes. But when you look at countries that try Marxism all over again, just look down at Venezuela, see what's happening there. It doesn't work well. And I just, I can only think that there is a a deliberate closing of the eyes to the real life outworking. Socialist economies have never, ever worked in practice um, because they're all about redistribution and taking from rather than creating wealth and building up. Of course, free market economies, one needs a Christian worldview to mitigate uh, human greed. No, and, and on an individual level, we should never cultivate, you know, just sheer greed. But societies will only be lifted from poverty if you allow freedom to create goods and freedom to build up. And you have to protect private property for that to happen. Societies that deny the truth of human property are effectively denying the commandment, uh, you shall not steal. When you chuck out that and, and the commandment, you shall not covet. When you chuck out the moral law of God, the societal outworking is, is disastrous. That's one would expect. Well, the book is The Lies We Are Told, The Truth We Must Hold, Worldviews and Their Consequences. And my guest is Dr. Sharon James. She is social policy analyst for the Christian Institute and uh, the author of the book. And early on uh, in our discussion, Sharon, you talked about the uh, a lot of the transgender uh, ideas and how uh, it has taken hold, whatever the worldview that that grows out of. And, and, uh, and obviously, it's become a... Um, uh, something uh, that's difficult to navigate uh, in, in both of our cultures. and But what worldview did that grow from? I mean, if we look back not too far, this wasn't even a, an issue, and suddenly it's huge. Yeah, effectively, it's the worldview that says there is no creator God. Because if there is a creator God, we then accept the fact that we are created beings. And that actually places certain limitations on us. I am a woman. That, that means that I, I am defined by my biology. And we believe that God has created a world that, that makes sense. And the whole way that he's created this, this, this world is male, female. And then that has a natural outworking in terms of the natural family and reproduction. If you deny that there's a creator God, you deny that there are any natural institutions like family, we can then deconstruct those institutions and make them according to our own desires. And even ourselves, we do not have to conform to our created purposes because we don't believe in a creator. We create our own identity. And we, in a sense, that's the ultimate uh, implosion of the liberal project, whereby absolute human autonomy leads to the situation where every individual says, well, I can define myself and say who or what I want to be. And now we see the civil war exploding as, as, as gender critical feminists say, well, hang on, what about women's spaces? What about women's sports? What about women's privacy? And then the trans activists say, no, we define ourselves. And if I, a man, say I am a woman, you cannot argue with my self-identification. So essentially, it all goes back to the devil's first lie. Has God really said, is there really a God? Um, and all of the dysfunctions that we see around us flow from that. Sharon, obviously most people uh, listening to this or that, that hold to some of these viewpoints that we've discussed uh, in your book probably have not read about them or very little, but they've been influenced to accept them, to believe them, to live by them. Where uh, are these coming through? I mean, is it just through something as common as film and those kind of things? 
the the, the whole uh, media, social media, the mm. entertainment industry, education, academia, these have all been infiltrated by what some people would call critical theory. You could more simply just say radical doubt that there is no such thing as ultimate truth. If If you've got over 7 billion, up to 8 billion, how many individuals there are in this world, each making our own reality, uh, y- you ultimately have chaos and you ultimately have a, have a deeply uh, unstable and divided society. But we are all impacted by this. And I think that this is the moment at which Christians should not be compromising with this. We should not be running scared. We should be saying... We live in a cosmos. This cosmos has been designed by a creator God. There is unity. As a human race, there is an essential unity to the human race. We're not all divided up into little individual identity groups. We are all made in the image of God. Um, We all descended from the same first parents. It's a glorious, unifying, um, uh, harmonious vision of reality. If only we could be brave enough and confident enough to get out there and, and tell this good story. Well, well, Sharon, you call it the link chapter between the lies and then the the truth, the biblical worldview, that of how the church has responded, and I think you essentially say silence, acquiescence, or celebration. But Not to, all church. But to some extent, this has been the response. Can, can you talk about that a little bit and what has led to, uh, to that kind of a response? Yeah, it's an absolutely tragic thing that in the face of challenges, the visible church has not always held a united front. And we can't just blame the 21st century or even the 20th century. I do start that chapter with the 19th century, where in the face of challenges from the so-called secular enlightenment, sadly, sections of the Christian church began to compromise by saying, oh, yeah, well, things like the miracles and the resurrection, that does seem quite implausible to educated people. So maybe we need to go back to the biblical text and look at it more like a his- just a human historical document. And you had this whole critical school of theology emerging from the German universities. Hmm. Well, in the 19th century, you had those Christians saying, reason must be placed over scripture. Now that shifted in the 20th century. And more, you had Christians saying, oh, my experience, my lived experience, my felt experience, I'll place that over scripture. I will judge scripture by my experience. So you have people saying things like, my God wouldn't X and Y and Z. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All right? Yeah. That's experience over scripture. And they perhaps were well-intentioned and thought that is the way to have traction with society around us. That's the way to have traction with our culture. And now in the 21st century, you have Christians absolutely terrified of offending people's own professed identity, whether it's trans or whatever. And yes, again, it's experience, your felt experience, my lived experience over scripture. But what I say in that chapter is that once you compromise the principle of The living God speaks through his living word, and his word has no mistakes. If you chuck that away, you might as well just give up even trying to be a Christian. Why even try? Why not just just be an honest unbeliever? (laughs) Um, And I point out in that chapter that it's those people through history who have stood firm to the truth, who who I've indicated in the end. I I mentioned Charles Haddon Spurgeon here in London, Mm -hmm. down the road at the Tabernacle, who said liberal theology has never saved one single soul and it never will. Um, And his ministry is now 
recognized as being one of the most influential Christian ministries in, 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 in all of church history. Um, so in the end, truth will out and those who stand on God's word are vindicated. But it takes, it sta- takes a, a brave person in today's world to speak against people's lived experience because that is elevated as the uh, thing that must never be challenged. How do you have a conversation where you have, if you will, can you have a conversation where you have the meeting of the minds? Well, you know what, Bill? I think actually we're at a brilliant moment for that conversation and for that meeting of minds. Because at this moment, you have atheists who don't even profess to be Christian who say to the unbeliever, look, you want social justice. We all want social justice. We believe that there should be human dignity and human freedom. Where do those ideas come from? And so somebody like Tom Holland, who wrote that massive book, Dominion, says you have to go back to Genesis, that truth that people are made in the image of God. Otherwise, there's no foundation for human dignity Mm -hmm. or human justice. So I would simply say that you ask questions. Where do you get these values and virtues from? They are from the idea that God has created us with dignity and in order to flourish. So I think that this is a good moment. There are non-Christians who are admitting that the um, liberal project is imploding because ultimate just self-determination, autonomy, individualism leads to diminished communities where everyone just wants to do their own thing and is unwilling to serve other people. Um, So the liberal project is imploding. And this is our moment to say God is the foundation, the ground of truth, justice and morality. Um, Let's go back and look at the Bible. And when you do that, when you look at the Bible and you talk about a biblical worldview, what is the foundation of that? I mean, is it not actually belief in Christ? Exactly. And and when you look at the injustice around us, only the biblical worldview explains why there is injustice. It's because we are sinners and we've rebelled against God. But it gives the solution and it gives the answer. The Lord Jesus Christ came into this world to save sinners. And when you look at the cross, ultimately, the biblical worldview is that it has achieved the unraveling of all of the effects of the curse. And we don't see that fully worked out yet, but we will. In other words, Jesus Christ came to defeat the works of the evil one. And there is the answer to evil in the biblical worldview. And the gospel is ultimately um, good news for everybody. And how does that lead to flourishing in the family, in our work, in our communities? Well, because, because the triune God has made us as human beings in his image, we are not just autonomous individuals. He's created us to relate and to love and to care and to serve and to create. So I, I have sections on the work ethic. We're created in God's image to create. We gain satisfaction when we make things that please other people or that serve other people's needs because we're made in the image of God. And the whole family um, is that... God has created us. We all have a mother and a father, even if we're not in a relationship ourselves. Um, and family, natural family, that as God has created it, is the connection between all of the generations, and it provides the best possible welfare system between generations. Um, so I have a whole section on the outworking of that. And then God's design for nations is good too. Um, it, it protects us, as I said earlier, against global tyranny. But one can also celebrate the fact that there are different ethnicities and cultures, and there are good things in those things. So we can affirm the unity of the human race while also affirming diversity of cultures. Um, And all of this is part of God's good 
plan and design. Sharon, before we go, I, di- I did want to ask many point those who would who would want to hold the view that there is no God or there is no morality or that uh, Christianity and Scripture actually is the problem. They point to uh, the many failings of Christian leaders, churches, those involved in politics and so on that have uh, that have been so widely publicized. How do you respond to that? Well, in a sense, Bill, that, that goes back to the, the book I wrote before this, How Christianity Transformed the World. Because while, of course, you say there are sad instances of failures of the visible church or the professing church, when you look at the living church, the followers of Jesus through history, they have had a transformative effect on whole societies as they have pioneered education, dignity of women, philanthropy, healthcare, so many things. These things have been pioneered by Christians, and we do not have to be embarrassed. We have a good story to tell. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Sharon James, policy analyst for the Christian Institute in London and author of the new book, The Lies We Are Told and the Truth We Must Hold. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Scott Sunquist on the benefits of knowing and faithfully reading church history. Somebody said, you, you mentioned on Monday that uh, we shouldn't expect that the government and society in the West is going to be favorable towards Christianity again. I said, no, absolutely not. I said, we do better to study more of the first five centuries of Christianity in Asia and Europe than to study the Reformation or even the 18th or 19th century. That's not going to help us much because that's not our context. Our context is more and more going to be like the first five centuries. We're resisted and we have to be faithful. We have to be allow ourselves to be countercultural, and that's okay. And then uh, to be willing to suffer uh, what it's going to take to be faithful when the larger society may punish us for that. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening. <laughs>